Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. We'll go ahead and get started. If you could please stand for prayer. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever and under the ages of ages. Amen. And make us worthy, O Master, to dare with confidence and without condemnation to call upon the heavenly God as upon a Father and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's not to temptation. But deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and under the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Our topic tonight, the Didache, it, as I said, is one of the earliest church documents that we have. Uh, most likely, it was a Jewish text that was then baptized by the early Christians, a Jewish text that was used for the catechumens, for those that were studying to enter the Jewish faith. And in fact, there are many quotes from the Didache that we'll be looking at tonight that can be seen also in a, in a slightly different form in one of the manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls among the Essenes. We just studied the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's very possible that uh, at least one of the theories is that the community of the Essenes, or in large part the community of the Essenes, followed John the Baptist to Christ and became Christian. And so it's a very good possibility, looking at these texts in comparison, that this is a text which actually predates the text we have all the way back into the Jewish tradition. So I think we have a, a unique opportunity tonight. Now take your handout that you have. If you do not have a handout, do we have any in the back? We There's no way we have any left in the back. They're all gone. All right, if you don't have it, I'm sorry you should have gotten here earlier. <laughs> Take a look at it because, look, the most important thing we do tonight, beyond you know, my commentary here and there, you're not going to remember what I'm going to say. I want you to have a sense of a, a bit of comfortableness with this text. You can go home. You can study it on your own. So the most important thing has already been accomplished tonight as far as I'm concerned, and that is I got a bunch of Catholics and non-Catholics, a bunch of Christians who are looking at an early church document that is not very well known and yet is quite influential to the early church and also to our church today, quite important. And so, that's it, I get to go home. <laughs> take out your copy there and let's just take a look at it real quick. You'll see the titles that they've put in there for you are quite helpful. The first part is called The Two Ways. Okay, The Two Ways, there is The Way of Life. And then if you look at your next page, you'll see, uh, or actually, uh, you got to turn it to section 5, paragraph 5. So look, look at how it's laid out, because I don't want to spend a bunch of time with that. See, it's in those paragraphs 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. You see those numbered, right? Look at paragraph 5. Now you have the way of death, okay? the way of life and the way of death. And then you have a conclusion to that section. Again, the parts where you see in the middle, conclusion and, and a church manual, these are additions later on. Okay? These are for us. This is not part of the original text. Part 2, they're calling in this, a church manual. Uh, I think it could have a better name, but fine. It gives the section on baptism, on the days of fasting, you'll see there, on the Eucharist, okay, very important because we're going to look at this, and most likely this text is dated as early as 60 AD. Okay, 60 AD is awfully early, and if you take an early dating of the New Testament, this would be written just as the ink was drying on the Synoptic Gospels, on St. Paul's epistles, and before St. John the Evangelist wrote his epistles, his, uh, his book of Revelation, and his Gospel. Okay, so this is quite early. We have a chance to look at the church's understanding of the Eucharist. And then you have uh, missioners and charismatists. Okay, 
uh, guys that are going out and they're evangelizing, spreading the news of the resurrection. How do we treat them? What happens in our community when some guy comes in waving Jesus flags okay, and starts uh, speaking in tongues? What do we do with the guy? And this is going to talk about that. Your next section is Sunday worship. A very interesting section. And finally, the text cuts off probably early. In other words, we probably don't have the concluding text to this, but with a a section on eschatology. What is eschatology? Yeah, it's a five-cent word for, uh, you know, the end of the world. So, there you go. Now you're familiar with the text, and we're going to be just kind of thumbing our way through it. How many of you brought your Bible with you today? Those are the people that are on my email list and hopefully opened your email. If you're not on the email list, you better get on it tonight. Because, uh, and then not only that, you always bring your Bible with you. Always, always, always. I don't care what the topic is for the Institute of Catholic Culture. If the speaker is, I can say this because I'm the founding director. If the speaker doesn't quote the sacred scriptures, he's not doing what I asked him to do. I don't care if you're talking about history, philosophy, theology. doesn't matter. I'm going to cut their pay. All right. The full title of the text, Didache, obviously, teaching. The teaching of the Lord given to the heathen or the Gentile. In other words, not the Jews. The teaching of the Lord given not to Jews. By the twelve apostles. So the teaching of the Lord as it was handed on by the twelve apostles to a particular people. So as we're reading this text, we've got to remember, who is he speaking to and why is he saying this? Or I just may say in that plural, these guys that wrote this, we don't know who wrote it. It seems like a quite a sober text, and so we wouldn't want to ascribe some crazy heretics to this thing. It was well respected within the churches we're going to see. So this could have been written by one guy, or maybe over a couple of years written down. And that's quite possible as we look at how it's put together. It's almost like it's kind of pieced together a little bit. We're going to take a look at that. As I said, there's internal and external evidence, again, that we're going to look at that dates this mostly to right around 60 AD, pre-fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple, okay, which it doesn't say anything about, which is a, one of the indications. Where was it written? Most likely in Syria or in Egypt. As the apostles headed north and south, they went not to places like Front Royal Virginia, you don't spread anything in Front Royal, Virginia, okay? <laughs> they went to places like Washington, D.C. and New York City, right? They went to Alexandria and Egypt, and they went north to Antioch and Syria and started preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ in these major centers of commerce, and from there the faith spread to the countryside. So this is a text that was written as they encountered for the first time the pagan world. It was lost until 1883, when it was rediscovered by a Greek metropolitan in a library in a monastery in Constantinople. In 1883, he published the text, and it was a groundbreaking text at the time, much like the Dead Sea Scrolls are today, or at least when they were discovered. But soon after its publication, it was realized that much of the Didache that we'll be looking at tonight was already known to the Christian world in other documents that had quoted it without referencing it. Other early church documents, pieces here and pieces there that you could piece together. But until this discovery, we did not know that those references were actually a unified whole Okay, in this text that we're calling the teaching of the twelve apostles, the teaching of the Lord to the heathen by the twelve apostles. Okay, And so it was quite a groundbreaking uh, discovery that this text was a whole unit familiar to the early church. It was found in fragments in the Apostolic Constitution and also in Clement of Alexandria that we will see. What is its relationship to the canonical writings? I would guess if I had put out an, an, a flyer that I was going to be teaching... Um, the book of Exodus tonight. We'd have about half this many people here. But we want more. There's got to be something missing. My dear friends, nothing can ever replace the sacred scriptures. And if you're bored of the sacred scriptures, you're bored of Jesus Christ and you better change religions. Or at least you better convert, okay, in your heart. So that's the first thing. What is its relationship to the canonical scriptures? Canon simply means rule. 
measure. Measure. So that rule of the scriptures by which the Christian community and the Jewish community kind of measured their life, okay? What was that list of books? And how does it relate to these other books that existed? First of all, we have what we call the canonical scriptures and the deuterocanonical scriptures. You guys are looking at me like, are you serious? What is the difference? Well, the canonical versus deuterocanonical scriptures are both found in your Catholic Bibles as part of the one thing which we call the Bible. Canonical versus deuterocanonical was a a distinction that was really set in stone by St. Jerome, who argued with the Pope over what books should be allowed in and what shouldn't, because at the time among the Jewish community in which St. Jerome had lived, certain books were not accepted of the Old Testament, those that today the Protestants do not accept. Seven books of the Old Testament, including parts of Esther and Daniel. And so Jerome argued against them, but the Pope was very clear, no, they are to be included, and St. Jerome said, fine, and he made this distinction between canonical and deuter, the first rule and second rule, or say maybe first class and second class. Fine for St. Jerome. For our purposes, it's the Bible. Okay? But even in our minds, huh? What's more important in the sacred scriptures, the Gospels or the epistles of St. Paul? Yeah. And so obviously, for the early Christian community, there was a certain fluid character to the scriptures and an understanding that certain things took precedent. And certain things were taken maybe in a second-class way. They were still important to us. We read them as the divine word, but we really focused our attention on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beyond the canonical and deuterocanonical, what we call the sacred scriptures, the Bible, we have other texts, non-canonical, or what I would actually prefer, extra-canonical books that were read in the early church, highly valued in the early church, and still valued today, but were not considered to be the inspired word of God that we would include in the sacred scriptures, in the canon. And in addition to that, there are the apocryphal writings, the things, the Gnostic writings mostly, okay? The apocryphal writings, ones that claim to be inspired and yet were found to be false. Uh, the Gospel of Peter and things like that, much of which Dan Brown used some of these Gnostic texts, right, to piece together his uh, lies about the faith and about Jesus Christ. So we have this fourfold distinction canonical, deuterocanonical, non canonical, or extra canonical, and these apocryphal texts. What would be some other thing, some, some texts that we're familiar with at the Institute of Catholic Culture that would, you would think maybe would be considered these non canonical or extra canonical works that were present in the early church? Okay. Uh, writings of St. Athanasius, sure. Quite late, quite late. And so I'd say yes. His writings probably were read in the context of the community, but already by his time, in the 300s, the canon was already becoming more of a formalized thing. Okay. Good. Ignatius of Antioch. The epistles of, of Clement of Rome, exactly. Okay. The modern of Polycarp, right? You guys are mentioning this because we looked at those last time. These are texts that were read in the church during the liturgy. <gasps> okay. The Bible as we know it today was not something familiar to the early church. In fact, it didn't exist in the form it exists in today until quite late. And you could point to different time periods for it being bound together in a, in a sense, brought together in a list of things. This is what's in and this is what's not in. The Didache is one of those texts that was disputed in the early church as to its inspiration and ultimately not included in the canon, but highly respected. Okay? I'm just realizing I'm way over time for my opening remarks. <laughs> so, i got to just move on. I was going to keep talking, but... Catholic Encyclopedia, this is the 1914 edition. That's the only one I have in my library. It's a beautiful edition, by the way. Oh. The idea of a complete and clear-cut canon of the New Testament existing from the beginning that is, from apostolic times, has no foundation in history. The canon of the New Testament, like that of the Old, is the result of a development, of a process at once stimulated by disputes with doubters, both within and without the church, and retarded by certain obscurities and natural hesitations. So the scriptures as we know it today, the canon as we know it today, is something that was discussed in the church up through the three, four, five hundreds, 
And uh, in fact, for the Roman church, the first official declaration, official declaration for the entire church was made at the Council of Trent in the 1500s. You believe that? 1500 years. I say this because I want you to get a sense of something very, very important. And, I, and for our Protestant brothers and sisters, hear me clearly. When John finished writing, when John died, right around 100, the Holy Spirit didn't fly away. The Holy Spirit stayed present in the church, inspiring the faithful, giving them that new life. In fact, our Lord promised, I will be with you always, and I will send the Holy Spirit to lead you into all truth. So when we make this fast and hard distinction between inspired text and non-inspired text, we make a false distinction. Don't get me wrong. The inspired Word of God is found in the Bible which you hold in your hands. And the Didache is not considered to be inspired in the same way these texts are. However, you'd be hard to tell me, hard-pressed to tell me, that the writer of the martyrdom of Polycarp or Ignatius of Antioch, as he's penning his letters to the churches on his way to martyrdom in Rome, is not lifted up in his writing by the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I say that because we have to break this idea. The Bible closes, and either the church departed into oblivion, or the Bible closed, and suddenly we have Mass as we know it today. And it just wasn't the case. It was a natural process of growth guided by the Holy Spirit. Okay, are you with me? Okay. I want you to turn to paragraph 3 in your text there. And I want you to come down four paragraphs in that little section. Sorry, paragraph 3, section 3, okay. Tell no lies, my son, for lying leads to theft. Tell no lies, my son, for lying leads to theft. Clement of Alexandria, writing in 185, says this. On the other hand, therefore, he who appropriates what belongs to the barbarians and vaunts it as his own does wrong, increasing his own glory and falsifying the truth. It is such a one that is by scripture, by scripture, called a thief. It is therefore said, and here's the quote from scripture, tell no lies, my son, for lying leads to theft. Right there in the Didache, not found in your Bible. But St. Clement of Alexandria was considering this text in such a way, as such an important thing within the church. In other words, this was a text that was being read within the church. And he quotes it as he would quote the other parts of sacred scripture. Eusebius. Eusebius, right in two, well, he lived between 263 and 339 says, since we are dealing with this subject, it is proper to sum up the writings of the New Testament, which have been already mentioned. First, then, we must put the Holy Gospels, following them by Acts of the Apostles. After this, we must be reckoned to the epistles of Paul, and so forth. These, then, belong among the accepted writings. Among the disputed writings, which are nevertheless recognized by many, are extant the so-called epistle of James, Jude, the second epistle of Peter, and so forth. Among the rejected writings must be reckoned also Acts of Paul, right? You're not familiar with that text. And the so-called Shepherd of Hermes, which you're going to find if you've got that book that I had you get. The Apocalypse of Peter. And in addition to these, the extant Epistle of Barnabas and the so-called teachings of the Apostles that we're looking at tonight. And besides, as I said, the Apocalypse of St. John. The Apocalypse of St. John, the book of Revelation, was under major dispute and just barely missed being cut off from its inclusion in the canon. And notice, side by side is placed also the disputed text that we're going to look at today, the Didache. What is this? Who is this author? That's one of the problems. We're not sure who its author is. And so we're not going to include that in the canon. Things like that, okay? St. Athanasius says, again, it is not tedious to speak of the books of the New Testament. These are the four Gospels, afterwards Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles, and besides, he includes the book of Revelation. But of greater exactness, I add this also. Writing of necessity, that there are other books. This is St. Athanasius writing in the 300s. There are other books besides that are not indeed included in the canon, but are appointed by the fathers to be read by those who newly join us and who wish for instruction in the word of godliness. The wisdom of Solomon, 
You're going to recognize some of these. The book of Sirach, Esther, Judith, Tobit, and the teaching of the apostles. Okay, the Didache. So here it is. He places it right here next to what we now have as the canon, but clearly these other books were also in dispute. Okay? And it says that the fathers appointed these to be read by those that were preparing to join them, the catechumens. And this is exactly what we have. The writing of the twelve, the teaching of, of our Lord to the heathens, right? to those that are outside of the church and now are about to be grafted on. Just before we look at the text itself, I just want to read you one little quote that will kind of set us on the right track. Being then in all probability the oldest extant non-canonical literature, the Didache brings us to the point where the New Testament ends, if we accept, if we don't include, the writings of St. John. In it, as in the New Testament, the odor of the old is still strongly perceptible. Its chapters on church organization are still reminiscent of the primitive conditions met with in St. Paul. All through it, we seem to hear the apostles speak to us. What a beautiful opportunity we have tonight to listen to the teaching of the early church, to imagine what it must have been like to be a follower of Christ, to be hunted as an atheist, uh, and to be looking forward with great hope to the kingdom to come. Go ahead and turn to your first page in your text itself. And I want to just quickly give you an overview of this first section, the way of life and the way of death. This is the moral catechetical section of the text that was given in preparation for baptism. And in fact, halfway through, the whole text is going to really change once baptism takes place. Okay, So there are two ways a way of life, and a way of death. And the difference between these two is great. The way of life is this, Thou shalt love first the Lord thy Creator, and secondly thy neighbor as thyself, and thou shalt do nothing to any man that thou wouldst not wish to be done to thyself. What you may learn from these words is to bless them that curse you, to pray for your enemies, and to fast for your persecutors. For where is the merit in loving only those who return your love? Even the heathens do as much as that. But if you love those that hate you, you will have nobody to be your enemy. Beware of the carnal appetites of the body. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other one to him as well, and perfection will be yours. Should anyone compel you to go a mile, go another one with him. If someone takes away your coat, let him have your shirt too. If someone seizes anything belonging to you, do not ask for it back again. You could not get it anyway. (laughs) Okay, and so on. The text for the first two sections, the way of life and the way of death, is kind of like this. It's kind of like um, all of the little moral teachings of Christ, not quite exactly the way our Lord said them, right? But awfully close. And they're just kind of put out there, one after another, one after another. It almost appears as though the writer of this text is writing from memory. He doesn't have the scroll of Matthew or, or Mark in front of him. But he's remembering the basic catechesis of the church. Do this and don't do that. Okay? I want you to turn, keep your finger, your hand there, you know where you are in the Didache. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that arose because of Stephen went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews. There were some Cypriots and Cyrenians among them, however, who came to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks as well, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay, what we have here in Acts chapter 11 is a major change in the evangelical work of the church. Notice, they went to Antioch, and who did they preach to? The Jews. Why? Because the guys preaching were Jewish. The faith had not encountered the Greek world, the pagan world yet, the heathens. And it's here in Acts chapter 11 that they encounter them for the first time. And what's going to be the problem? What's going to be the problem the early church is going to face? Yeah, these guys don't, they don't have the law. They don't know the Old Testament. What's, what, what else? What are some of the issues? Carrie, what are some of the issues that are going to come up in Acts chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and so forth? Yeah, 
so are we going to circumcise these guys? You know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt our numbers a bit. All right. Uh, what else? Food. Yeah, are they to keep the kosher laws? What else? Fine. Yeah, what about, exactly, what about the Sabbath? Huh? The early Christian Jews were still keeping the Sabbath while also celebrating the Lord's Day. Are they going to be required to go to synagogue? Hmm? How are we going to deal with these people? And this is what comes up at the first council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And it's exactly these issues that are going to come up in the Didache for us. Now, I want to go back to the first verse that you have there in the Didache. The first thing, go ahead, Melanie. There are two ways, a way of life and a way of death, and the difference between these two ways is great. Good. This text comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Okay, so I want you to turn back quickly to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30. Great text in preparation for the March for Life. Here's what's going on in the book of Deuteronomy. The Jews have just, are just finishing, in chapter 30, their 40 years in the wilderness. Okay? And they're on the edge of the Jordan River. They're literally looking into the Holy Land. And the guys in Canaan, in Palestine, in, in the Holy Land, are kind of flipping out. Okay? This huge mob of people that everywhere they go, they just wipe out armies. And they're, the people are in fear. The Israelites are standing on the edge of the Jordan River, and they're looking in, and this is what God says. See, I set before you this day life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His ordinances, then you will live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land which you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you might live. There are two ways, the way of life and the way of death. And this is what the Lord places before the Israelite people as they're about to enter into the promised land, the dwelling place of God. And it is the exact same image that is placed before the heathens who are preparing to enter into the church. The same image is placed there. You've been wandering your whole life in a desert of darkness, of sin. And now you are standing on the edge of the Jordan River. You are about to be baptized into Christ. And before you, behold, paradise. The Holy Land. The place of the dwelling of God. The Catholic Church. And in that place, you will receive all of the blessings which I have prepared for you. If you follow my way, the way of life. And if you follow the way of death, you know what happens. Okay? And this is the story of those first two sections in the Didache. And you can just look at it. It's almost, it could almost be a boring read unless you're reading it from the eye of the heathen who's hearing for the first time this gospel of virtue being preached. Leave the life of sin. Murder is wrong. Lying is wrong. Stealing is wrong. All of these things that you have been living your life by, advancing yourself above other people, is the wrong way. But there is another way, and it is the way of virtue. It is the good way, and it is the difficult way. And that is what is placed before them. Beware of the carnal appetites of the body. Look at section 2. The second commandment of the teaching means, section 2, commit no murder adultery, sodomy, fornication, or theft, practice no magic, sorcery, or abortion, or infanticide. Here it is, right at the beginning of the church, as soon as the Jews encounter, the Jewish Christians, encounter the heathen world, they lay it out there. And there it is, preparing for the march of life. Do not abort your children. Do not abort your children. Section 4. I'm just going to point out a few things so we can move on. Section 4. 
By day and by night, my son, remember who speaks the word of God to you. Give him the honor you would give the Lord. For wherever the Lord attributes, attributes are the subject of discourse, there the Lord is present. Frequent the company of the saints daily, so as to be edified by their conversation, and never encourage dissension, but try to make peace between those that are at variance. As a, I want to point that out to you because I think it's something that's so fundamental in our church today, where everybody's bickering back and forth. Everybody's upset at the, at the next guy. I got that question on Father Groeschel's show. Why don't these priests preach better sermons? Maybe the guy's not good at preaching. Okay? We don't encourage dissension within the body of Christ. Rather, we heal wounds and we bring people together. Okay? That's what we're looking to do, not looking for why this guy's doing this wrong and that guy's doing that and that guy left church early and this guy didn't come early enough. That's not what the church is about. It's about unity, not dissension. In the next paragraph, do not be like those who reach out to take, but draw back when the time comes for giving. If the laborer of your hands has been productive, make an offering as a ransom for your sins. Give without hesitating, without grumbling. Point that out again as a little apologetic point. It has always been the custom of Christians to give what is yours for the forgiveness of your sins. And I would say maybe many of the non-Catholics say, oh, say, oh that's just magic. You're just trying to pay off. Not at all. You're giving of yourself as an act of reparation to heal what had been done when you closed in on yourself and committed sin. Now open yourself. Give what is of yours. And in that act, you will be healed. Not because $10 pays for the sin. Not at all. But you're giving of yourself, which does the exact opposite of what the sin did. And finally, uh, you just drop down a couple of paragraphs there. You see, in church, you see that? In church, make confession of your faults, and do not come to your prayers with a bad conscience. This is the way of life. Huh? In church, go to confession. Make confession of your sins. In those days, public confession was made. You know, we didn't go hide in a box or you know, in, the, in the dark, not at all. They confessed their sins to the community. This is what I did. I think maybe we should bring that back. <laughs> it, it would stop a lot of people from sinning, I'll tell you that. All right, the way of death is this. The way of death is this. Go ahead, Melanie. To begin with, it is evil, and in every way fraught with damnation. In it are murders, adulteries, lusts, fornications, thefts, idolatries, witchcraft, sorceries, robberies, perjuries, hypocrisies, duplicities, deceit, pride, malice, self-will, avarice, foul language, jealousy, insolence, arrogance, and boastfulness. Here are those who persecute good men, hold truth in abhorrence, and love falsehood, who do not know the rewards of righteousness, nor adhere to what is good, nor to just judgment, who lie awake planning wickedness rather than well-doing. And so on and so on. You guys got to get the hint of it, right? Do you notice there's something missing from this catechism? What's missing? What, what would you like good, faithful Catholics here? What about, where are the doctrines of the church? This, is, this point is simply a moral instruction. And guess what? they're not going to find out about the mysteries of the church, the heathens aren't, until a little bit later in the text. Because these men have not been baptized. They have not come to the place where they can receive the full revelation of Jesus Christ. I point that out again. I'm sorry to keep using my interview with Father Groeschel, but I, there were some, some things in there. I kept saying that so oftentimes I, I'm standing in a conversation with a Catholic and a Protestant, and the Catholic goes after the Protestant, well, don't you realize that Matthew 16, 18 says that the Pope is, uh, is the cornerstone foundation of the church? And the Protestant ears turn off. Because this is not what they need to hear. Not right now. First, we have to talk about the true nature of the church. But what the reason why Jesus Christ came to be with us. And once they know that and are convicted about the truth about what Jesus Christ has come to give us, namely his own life, then all of those doctrines of the church can become clear because those are the things which are found in God alone. The ability to forgive sins, infallibility, and so forth. These are the things that are proper to God and no non-Catholic is going to argue about that one. God is infallible, yes? But the question is, how can they be found among men? And the answer is very simple because God desires to share his life with us. My point is that in the Didache, first off, they go after getting these people to realize there's another way, the way of life. 
It's a difficult way, the way of virtue. And that is the reason people were converting in the pagan world. Because they, were, they saw the vomitoriums and so forth where these people were gorging themselves a few and then going, throwing it up. That stealing won the day and the guy that was the most powerful won the day. This was fundamentally different. This was the revelation of a different Lord. And here we have it in the Didache. Alright, the next section. Oh, the dietary laws. Oh, the very last paragraph. And I'm just going to say one thing. As regards diet... Keep the rules so far as you are able. Only be careful to refuse anything that has been offered to an idol, for that is the worship of dead gods. We can get into this in Q&A if you want. Basically what was going on is when the Jews were encountering the Gentile world, the question, can we break the kosher laws? Do they have to hold the kosher laws? Can they go and eat the meat that was offered to idols? In those days, the pagan temples were a place kind of like a meat market. People were bringing their animals, they were being slaughtered, and right there in the temple, as you would see in Acts of the Apostles, there were tables set up, and they're feeding people because they had to get rid of the, of the meat. And it was believed that if you drank of the blood of an animal, you would receive their spirit. This was kind of the height of paganism. And the Jews said, or the early Christians said, look, we know those false gods don't exist, but you don't want to be a scandal to your neighbor. And therefore, do not eat of these things, lest someone else see you there eating that meat and be scandalized by it. Remember unity. Part 2, a church manual. The procedure for baptizing is as follows. After rehearsing all the preliminaries, immerse in running water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If no running water is available, immerse in ordinary water. This should be cold if possible, otherwise warm. If neither is practicable, then sprinkle water three times on the head in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Both baptizer and baptized ought to fast before baptism, as well as any others who can do so. But the candidate himself should be told to keep a fast for a day or two beforehand. This is the beginning of the catechumenate. For a couple of days, prepare yourself through fasting. And notice what it says. Both baptizer and baptized, the priest and the the one who is being baptized, ought to fast as well as any others. This is the reason why, Catholics, we fast during Lent. Yes, for preparation for ourselves, but first and foremost, for the catechumens that are about to be baptized into the church. We fast for them and with them to prepare ourselves spiritually to be able to see things properly so that we're not controlled by the passions and by the lower appetites. That we can say, no, those things, we're going to set those aside so we can turn our spiritual eyes towards the Lord. Now, what is this about baptism in cold water, warm water, flowing water, non-flowing water, immersion, sprinkling? Okay, first of all, baptism by immersion is the ancient practice of the church. I don't have time to read it to you. You can write it down if you're taking notes. Catechism, paragraph 1239, St. Thomas Aquinas, part 3 of the Summa, question 66, article 7. Christian burial is more clearly represented by immersion. It is preferable in the church. And it's only recently in the West that it has become more common to sprinkle water. As the Didache says, valid practice, but it is not the preferable practice of the church. Why is that? Yeah, it's not practical. There is that aspect, and St. Thomas mentions that. But it can be done. It can be done. In fact, some of you have seen some churches, I think St. Philip's. Why baptism by immersion? Baptism is about death. Taking notes, Romans chapter 6. In baptism, we are baptized into Christ in his death and in his burial and ultimately in his resurrection, that we are plunged into Christ in his burial and death. St. Paul says, those of you who are united to Christ in his death will surely also be united to him in his resurrection. This is what takes place in baptism, that we are plunged into the mystery of Christ's death. And death, as St. Paul says, has no more dominion over Christ. Those that are baptized into Jesus Christ, death no longer has dominion over us. And so baptism by immersion is always preferable in the Catholic Church because it shows forth more perfectly the reality of burial underneath the waters. The fathers say, coming forth like from a womb, the child is reborn as a son of God. 
So the symbolism is important here. And the Didache mentions that. Living water, running water, from the Greek the same. The living water, the, the water that has the life-giving qualities about it. Again, it more perfectly shows forth the reality that's taking place. And these things are important to us as we consider how we celebrate the sacraments today. The next section. Great, another one of my hobby horses. Par uh, section 8. On fast and prayer. Do not keep the same fast days as the hypocrites. Who are the hypocrites? Yeah, probably the Pharisees he's going after. Who fast on Mondays and Thursdays are their days for fasting. So yours should be, Catholics, Wednesdays and Fridays. Why did the Jews fast on Mondays and Thursdays? Because they believed, there was a tradition, that Moses ascended Mount Sinai and beheld the face of God on a Monday and on Thursday received the law. And so in honor of that day, they fasted. In fact, in Luke, oh, we don't have time to go, write it down. Luke chapter 18, verse 12, you remember the story of the publican and the Pharisee. And the Pharisee says, you get the insight into his prayer, and he says, I, I, I fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Christians fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. Let's begin with Fridays, friends. Okay? Hobby horse for a second. You gotta fast. You gotta fast. It's a commandment of the Lord. Because, why? Because there's something bad about food? Not at all. But because we're constantly, constantly feeding ourselves. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I go after it, I get it. And the church says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Self-control. Even though those things that are good for you, so that you can find out what is truly good for you. Those that fast, I can guarantee you, enjoy meat much more when the fast is over than anyone who never kept the fast. Fridays, Catholics, we don't have to fast anymore. Not true. The church today, the Roman Catholic Church, teaches that either you have to keep a fast on Fridays or what? Some other sacrifice. Well, I'll tell you what. Listen, for the Institute of Catholic Culture, let's stick to the traditional practices of the church because the fathers laid these out, the saints laid these out. These are men that are, are, are tried and true in the spiritual way. Don't go playing around with that. Keep a fast on Fridays. What about Wednesdays? Why do we fast on Fridays? The crucifixion. What about Wednesdays? Traditionally, the day that Judas betrayed the Lord. So, traditionally... Wednesdays and Fridays for Christians. Wednesdays and Fridays. And I encourage you, do it. Do it. See, but the church doesn't oblige me to do it. Another hobby horse for Sabatino for about five seconds. If you live your life on obligation, you're not living the Christian life. I'll tell you why. Because the church says this. At least you have to attend Mass on Sunday. Right? At least you've got to receive the Eucharist once a year. At least. It's like a freeway. At least is bumping up against the side rail the whole time. And guess what? If you hit it enough times, you're going to get a flat tire. You're going to go off the, off the road. Get to the center of the body of Christ. If you're at least making it as a Christian, boy, I hope you at least make it to heaven. Okay? But I wouldn't take a chance. Okay? Grow in the spiritual life. Grow in the spiritual life. Seek something more. Use the saints as our guide. So begin. Fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. Keep the Lenten fast and so forth. What's our next section? This is, is this a beautiful text? It's got some good guidance in it, huh? Right there, 60 AD. What do you know? They figured something out. Okay, Melanie, go ahead and give us a reading. We're going to read this section on the Eucharist. At the Eucharist, offer the Eucharistic prayer in this hey, way. Hold on just a second. At the end, I'm going to ask you what's missing. What did you want to, what did you want to hear more of? Okay, go ahead, Melanie. Begin with the chalice. We give thanks to thee, our Father, for the holy vine of thy servant David, which thou hast made known to us through thy servant Jesus. Glory be to thee, world without end. Then, over the broken bread, we give thanks to thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge thou hast made known to us through thy servant Jesus. Glory be to thee, world without end. As this broken bread, once dispersed over the hills, was brought together and became one loaf, so may thy church be brought together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. Thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever and ever. 
No one is to eat or drink of your Eucharist, but those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. For the Lord's own saying applies here, Give not that which is holy unto dogs. When all have partaken sufficiently, give thanks in these words, Thanks be to thee, Holy Father, for thy sacred name which thou hast caused to dwell in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which thou hast revealed to us through thy servant Jesus. Glory be to thee forever and ever. Thou, O Almighty Lord, hast created all things for thine own name's sake. To all men thou hast given meat and drink to enjoy, that they may give thanks to thee. But to us thou hast graciously given spiritual meat and drink, together with life eternal through thy servant. Especially and above all do we give thanks to thee for the mightiness of thy power. Glory be to thee forever and ever. Be mindful of thy church, O Lord. Deliver it from all evil. Perfect it in thy love. Sanctify it and gather it from the four winds into the kingdom which thou hast prepared for it. Thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Let grace come and this present world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. Whosoever is holy, let him approach. Whoso is not, let him repent. Maranatha, amen. Come, Lord, amen. Okay. There is the Eucharistic text. What's missed? What do you want more of? Yeah, what about the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Hmm? Ah, obviously, a late invention of the Catholic Church, right? No, not at all, not at all. First of all, let's look at the text very quickly. There appears to be two sections here, broken about halfway through at no one is to eat, right, or drink of your Eucharist. If you have a pencil, underline that in your book. No one is to eat or drink of your Eucharist, but those who have been baptized in the name of the Lord. For the Lord's own saying applies here, give not that which is holy unto dogs. When all have partaken sufficiently, or had their fill, doesn't really sound so much like the Eucharist, right? Have you filled your belly up? Doesn't sound like it, does it? Then this second section begins, which again is not, it leaves something to be lacking, right? It's almost like there's these two Eucharistic prayers. What does the word Eucharist mean? Thanksgiving. These two offerings, these two thanksgivings. One at which is concluded, let no one eat or drink who is not worthy, right? Don't throw your pearls before swine. Those that have had their fill, now let's move forward. And then there's a second thanksgiving offered. And at the end of that second thanksgiving, we notice a phrase that we're very familiar with in the liturgy, which is, Hosanna, Hosanna to the God of David. Holy, holy, holy. Those words that are said just before our current Eucharistic prayer. And then that key phrase, whosoever is holy, let him approach. They've had their fill. Then they talk about not giving holy things to dogs. Then offer a thanksgiving and then reapproach. What's going on here? First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you can get there quickly, fine. Verse 17. St. Paul, okay, to the Corinthians. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for better, but for worse. For in the first place, when you assemble as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I partly believe it. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you meet together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and so forth. Right? And he says, Is not the participation in the cup a participation in the blood of Christ? And so forth. What's going on? In the early church, just like at the Last Supper, there was a bringing together of two things. The meal, a community meal, and then concluding with, apparently, it's not clear because we don't have much information on it, but little tidbits like this from 1 Corinthians. Apparently what was going on, they were coming together as a community, they were eating together as a community, and then they would have the last portion of their meal together would be the Eucharistic portion. Okay, the Eucharistic, in the sense that we know it today, to receive communion. 
in the context of the community. And that's what St. Paul's talking about. Some are getting drunk. Some are eating. And the Didache, they're filling themselves full. But notice what the Didache then says. Do not cast your pearls before swine. Those that are allowed to remain, remain, most likely, as we can understand it, piece it together, and remain for the Eucharistic part, the Eucharist of Jesus Christ, and then, after recollecting themselves, confessing their sins, then those who are worthy come forward to receive the mysteries of God. Why is this in veiled language? There was a practice in the early church, undisputed practice, that when a document was written, or when instruction was given, if it wasn't an instruction that was an in-house instruction or instruction just to those that have been baptized, veil language would be used. They would not, in a sense, cast their pearls before swine because the world had no understanding of what they were really doing. Let me read you just one quote from St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Should a catechumen ask what the teachers have said, Tell nothing to a stranger, for we deliver to thee a mystery. Let no man say to thee, What harm if I know it? See thou, let nothing, not that that what is said is not worthy of telling, but because the ears that hear do not deserve to receive it. Thou thyself was once a catechumen, and then I told thee not what was coming. When thou hast come to experience the height of what is taught thee, thou wilt know that the catechumens are not worthy to know them. Not worthy to know them. This was the practice of the early church. And we see it here in the Didache. The moral teaching of the church is given. Some basics about the faith are given. And the person is called to accept those teachings or not. To enter into the catechumen, to fast and prepare themselves for baptism. And only then, once baptized, are the full mysteries of the faith revealed to you. Only then. And so it was at that point, and you still see that in the Roman church today, after Vatican II, they restored a couple things about the catechumenate. Unfortunately, some people just don't know what to do with them. But two Sundays prior to Easter, I think the Our Father is given first. Right? You're saying the scroll? The Our Father. And then the Sunday prior, or earlier in the church, it was just like the day before the creed was given. And these are still practiced in some churches where the catechumens come forward and there's a little ceremony and they give them their little scroll of the Our Father. Yes, you've seen it? Yes? This is the practice from the early church because they were not worthy or able to understand the mysteries. And only after baptism would the full revelation be given of the Eucharist. And here you have it in this document. Not until after the text on baptism do we then enter into the text on the Eucharist. And even then, because it is a text which is going to be exposed to the heathens, they're going to have a chance to see this possibly. It's not just an in-house document. The whole Eucharistic part is veiled. I've got about a hundred more quotes for you that we can't read tonight on that point. But uh, that was the practice of the early church. All right. What's our next section? We don't have to say much about that. Here, they're talking about how to greet these guys coming in. You know, a guy walks in and starts having visions and talking in tongues. What do you do? And that's given. I encourage you to read that at home. I want you to turn to section 13. And I've got about three minutes, and I'm going to finish, I promise. A genuine charismatist, however, who wishes to make his home with you has a right to a livelihood. Similarly, a genuine teacher is as much entitled to his keep as a manual laborer. You are therefore to take the first products of your wine press, your threshing floor, your oxen and your sheep, and give them as first fruits to the charismatists, the prophets. For nowadays, it is they who are your high priests. If there are, no, if there are none of them among you, give them to the poor. And when you bake a batch of loaves, take the first to them and give it away, as the commandment directs. Similarly, when you broach a jar of wine or oil, take the first portion and give it to them. So too, with your money and your clothing and all your positions, take a tithe. In the word tithe there, 10%, and whatever way you think best, and make a gift of it, as the commandment bids you. I have one thing to say, friends. If the collection basket comes around on Sunday and you look in your wallet to see what's left over, you're not following the teachings of the church. And if I'm making you feel a little uncomfortable, you should. 
It's about time that we stop having fundraising gimmicks in the Catholic Church. There was a reason why a bunch of poor people could build St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, and why when you go to Europe today, on every single street corner, there's a Catholic Church that is ten times better than any Catholic Church that's built in the Arlington Diocese. Amen? Amen. All right. But the reason and the way they did that was because they realized that the first portion was the Lord's. In fact, it's all the Lord's. It's all His. So next time you think about what you're going to give to the church, stop, start at the beginning of the month, sit down with your family, and figure out what 10% of your income is. And if you say you can't afford it, nonsense. Because the poor people who suffered a lot worse than we suffer in America today did it for centuries upon centuries. 10% right off the top. Not at the end of the month to see if you can afford it. It's God's. Give it to Him. Okay? A portion of our tithe right at the beginning. Section 14. Assemble on the Lord's day and break bread and offer the Eucharist, but make confession of your faults. Okay? Before you come to the Eucharist, make confession (laughs) of your faults. And notice that early on. Assemble on the Lord's day. That's coming from the book of Revelation. The Jewish Christians and now the heathens who have been baptized into Christ began to bring themselves together, not on the Sabbath day, but on the Lord's day, on the day of the resurrection. As St. Paul says, those things were a shadow. I just talked to a lady that watched the EWTN show, and she's been snookered by these, um, what they call themselves, the Messianic Jewish Christians, whatever they want to call themselves. And they're telling her she's got to go back because God said in the Old Testament it's a teaching in perpetuity, right? Forever and ever, every generation. But she doesn't realize the man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man as a way to get him into the rest of God, to rest in the bosom of the Lord, that his life would be there. And I'll tell you what, that happened, as St. Paul says, when Jesus Christ took on human nature and he took our human nature into the dwelling place, into the inner life of God himself. And in that, those that are baptized into Christ now rest in God, not just on one day of the week, but for all eternity. So there it is, right there in 60 AD. The final section, go ahead, Melanie, read it, on eschatology. Okay, again, imagine the early church, they're looking forward to the Lord with anticipation Okay, and this is the same thing we should have in our hearts. Go ahead, Melanie, we'll conclude. Be watchful over your life. Never let your lamps go out or your loins be ungirt. But keep yourselves always in readiness, for you can never be sure of the hour when our Lord may be coming. Come often together for spiritual improvement, because all of the past years of your faith will be no good to you at the end unless you have made yourselves perfect. In the last days of the world, false prophets and deceivers will abound. Sheep will be perverted and turn into wolves, and love will change to hate. For with the growth of lawlessness, men will begin to hate their fellows and persecute them and betray them. Then the deceiver of the world will show himself, pretending to be a son of God and doing signs and wonders. And the earth will be delivered into his hands, and he will work such wickedness as there has never been since the beginning. After that, all humankind will come up for their fiery trial. Multitudes of them will stumble and perish, but such as remain steadfast in the faith will be saved by the curse. And then the signs of the truth will appear. First, the sign of the opening heavens. Next, the sign of the trumpet's voice. And thirdly, the rising of the dead. Not of all the dead, but as it says, the Lord will come and with them all his holy ones. And then the whole world will see the Lord as he comes riding on the clouds of heaven. The Didache is a small and tantalizing piece of evidence from a period of enormous importance for the history of, the early, of early Christianity, of which we are almost totally ignorant and driven to conjecture and hypothesis. But apart from the evidence it gives us for answering the kind of questions we want to ask, it provides, more importantly, a picture of the church standing on the brink of the world to come, eager for the coming of its Savior, to whom it looks with joy, and aware of the momentous decision we make in the face of that coming, a decision between light and darkness, a decision between life and death. Thank you very much. We'll take uh, our, our normal break. Mel, you want to give our rules? 
Um, five questions or five minutes. Oh, the question has to be a question. It has to have a question mark at it at the end of it. One sentence long. Don't go on a diatribe. Oh, don't That's take the microphone. Exit. No oh, wait breathing. For Melanie. Melanie, it's, it's Melanie's microphone. Yeah. And it has to it's do with the subject at hand, and it can't be hard. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. This, this strikes me very much um, to, to feed right into that word that you didn't use, but capital T, tradition. Mm -hmm. And particularly in terms of when it talked about abortion, my translation is even a little bit more pinpointed. It says, do not kill a fetus by abortion. That's yeah. pretty specific yeah. and beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, look, we all know, right? Everybody in this room, I think. You know, it's pretty obvious, but I just want you to know, I want you to get a sense that, look, this is, there's no, there's no debate about it, right? It's just listed as one of those things among murder and adultery that you just don't do. And there was no debate about it. The, uh, the last paragraph sounds very much like the book of Revelation, almost a paraphrase of it. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have any opinion, which influenced which and to what extent? Um... Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Well, I wouldn't want to say that this influenced influenced John. I mean, John's yeah, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. So I didn't think about that question beforehand. I mean, it's very possible that he had read this text. That's a possibility um, beforehand. But also, you're going to want to look at First and Second Thessalonians if you're taking notes. Okay, which gets into this type of language also. You know, I would just I, I guess an answer to you, I'd say that it doesn't have to be one or the other, except most likely this is written before, if you give it an early dating. Some will give it a late dating, as late as 120, uh, but I would say those same people are probably going to say that John was not written by John, but by the Johannine community. If you're going to give an early dating to it, and you believe John wrote John, and that the Didache was written around 60 AD, then uh, clearly this would be beforehand, so John wouldn't have influenced it. But at the same time, I would say this was a common perception of this, kind of awaiting, huh? This looking forward to and I love that last phrase, when the Lord comes riding on the clouds of the heavens. It's something, unfortunately, I think we miss today, but we've got to have that, revive that sense of hope and that desire for the return of the Lord. Not a fear of the return of the Lord, because if we're living our life the way we're supposed to be living our life, and look, God's not going to come and you know, nitpick you and try to find your fault. Oh, and I tricked you up. Now you're going to hell. Not at all. You, you live a good life in communion with the church and... Uh, God's going to reward us for that, and he's coming not as our condemner, but as, as our friend, as our brother, as our hero, and as our God. And they had a real sense of that, this desire to be with the Lord. So yeah. uh, section 15, which you didn't go over, uh, uses the word bishops. Do you know the, the Greek behind the word bishops? Yeah, a piece And is that, in, uh, is that in any of the other New Testament documents, but translated as something else? Yeah, episkopos which means overseer, and in fact, in my translation, it does say, I thought it said overseer, is that not in your translation? You know, it's a transliteration versus a translation, and uh, it just means overseer. In my translation, it does say, you must choose for yourself overseers, bishops, okay, and assistants, and the word episkopos, or bishop, is used throughout the New Testament, and I had just written one reference down uh, yeah, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, but that's just one of many, one of many. And also deacons in Acts chapter 6, of course, someone was just asking me, where are the priests? The priesthood is a distinct entity from the overseers, the bishops, was something that developed late in the church, late, well, okay, within the first century, of course, but in the New Testament, we, they talk about elders, there's mention of elders, presbyteroi, but as a distinct thing from the bishops, not so clear. It's something that developed, that clear distinction developed later, just as deacons developed in the church as the need for them came, right? And when did the need for them come? In Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists murmured against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Look, they're coming together to eat together, right? And the twelve summoned to the body of the disciples and said, 
It is not right that we should give up preaching from the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, pick out from uh, among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so they picked out Stephen and then these other seven or these other six, right? And so this was a development in the church. Again, the Holy Spirit didn't just fly away when Jesus ascended into heaven, right? came down at Pentecost and didn't leave when John died. And so the church is, is led to fulfill its mission in serving the people of God as needed. And so as it became necessary to have priests as distinct from bishops, okay, as kind of their hands and feet, as the word spread, and they had to go to smaller communities and they would send their priests off to do all of these jobs they needed, then that distinction developed. And someone else said, yeah, but what about subdeacons? <laughs> As some of you know, I'm a subdeacon in the Greek Catholic Church, and subdeacons developed again quite late in response to the need that now the deacons had too much to do. They're sitting there cooking food, right? Flipping the hamburgers. No one's there to wash dishes, and so they made subdeacons. When we evangelize today, should we follow the practice of the early church that you pointed out of veiling the truth? Well, look, the cat's out of the bag, right? I mean, everybody knows that the Catholic Church teaches this, this, and this, and those are the things that they got a problem with. And so I'd say, you know, I'd say yes. However, you have to be aware, these people know pretty much what we believe. The problem is that they don't know why we believe it. And I would say, for the most part, Catholics don't know why we believe it either. Right? We know what we believe. Right? I would say, for the most maybe you guys are going to disagree. No, the Catholic, no, we're just so uncatechized. I don't think so, especially in Northern Virginia. Most people going to Sunday Mass know the basic teachings of the church. Huh? They know them. They, maybe they don't follow them, some people, but they know the basic teachings of the church. You can't divorce. We believe that Christ is present in the Eucharist. The problem is, that these are propositions, and they remain propositions. And I memorize my propositions, and therefore I'm a good Catholic. Maybe you're a Catholic that knows how to memorize things, but that doesn't make you a good Catholic. What makes you a good Catholic is being in love with Jesus Christ. This is where our catechesis has to begin. Yes, fine, we have a a catechism that's full of all sorts of doctrines. Tons. It's all full of them, right? But guess what? Paragraph 1, sentence 1. Mary is ever virgin. You got that? Can you accept it? Because we can't go on from here if we can't do that. That's not what it says. God, infinitely perfect and blessed in himself, in a plan of sheer goodness, freely created man to make him a share in his own blessed life. To share his life with him. Period. Now, let's talk about that for a while. We, maybe we could have a, a month or two of RCIA on that sentence. And then once we start to understand these mysteries, I mean, that, that's profound. What's that mean? What's that mean that God shared his life with us? That's where we begin. And once somebody can accept that and receive that gift, once they come to terms with that fact that God loves them that much, then we can start talking about what happens then. And once we got that principle, okay, fine. We can go on with the rest of the catechism. And guess what? I dare say that you got a, a whole flood of people that would, just start, that would be happy to join a church that actually taught about God's love. Because you know, intellectual arguments, however pure they might be, are not going to convict the soul. Okay. Anyways, another hobby horse. God bless you. See you this Thursday. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.